Do you remember when you heard the news? Do you remember when you heard the news that turned your life upside down? That flipped your script? That made everything that you thought was going to happen in your life obsolete? That messed with your plan for how life was going to go? Maybe it was when you got the test results back and they were positive. Maybe it's when the person that you thought loved you more than anything else in the world told you they don't love you anymore. Maybe it was when you walked into the office with a job, walked out of the office without a job. Maybe it was when you walked into a room and saw something that you wished you could unsee. Whatever it is, every person has some place in their life, a moment where the script was flipped, where what they thought was going to happen in their life suddenly was gone. I'll give you a couple of mine. I remember when I received the call from my dad that we were moving from Ontario to California. I lived my whole life in Ottawa in 17 years. I identified as a Canadian. I thought that was who I was. All of a sudden, it felt like it was being ripped out of my hands. I remember when my dad called me and told me that he had MS. My dad's my hero. I look up to him for just about everything in my life, and it was the first time in my life where I had thought, he's actually mortal, and someday I'm going to lose him, at least for a little while. I remember when the girl that I was dating and thought I was going to marry called me and told me that she couldn't marry me. I had a plan. I thought my life was going one direction, and in a few seconds, it wasn't. Maybe you can remember yours, and maybe you would say about them, you know, those things are what made me who I am today, so I'm glad they happened. Okay, sure, but that doesn't mean they weren't painful in the moment, right? That they messed with the way you were thinking, and it maybe put you into a little bit of a panic, gave you some anxiety, It made you wonder who you were and what you're doing. But have you ever had one of those moments when the news comes and it's really good? When it flips your script but flips it for the better? We're going to hear a story about a woman to whom that happened today. Her name is Mary. As we continue our sermon series, You Heard It Here First, we're following each of the characters in the Christmas story and seeing how God reported the reality of the Christmas story to them. This whole series theme is answering this idea that Christmas really happened. For some of us who have been Christians our whole life, we've maybe heard the story of Christmas again and again and again, and it's kind of become just part of the tradition of this time of year. But we forget that it really happened. And that because it's real history, it has implications in our lives today. If maybe we're not a Christian, you don't consider yourselves a fo- consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it's good for you to know Christmas really happened. It's historically verifiable. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. Last week I laid out from the book of Luke how we can see real history happening in the Bible. And I hopefully answered a number of the objections that a lot of people come to when they read these stories about whether they actually happened or not. So we're continuing today with Mary's story to find out that Christmas again really happened and how God graced her life as he flipped her script. 
We're going to read from Luke chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole text up front. We're going to read it as we go through uh, the text. So we'll start reading at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So first of all, who's this Elizabeth character? Because it's the sixth month of her pregnancy. And if you haven't been reading Luke chapter 1 up to this point, you have no idea who she is. It turns out Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, her older cousin. And by older, I don't just mean slightly older, I mean menopausal. Like far beyond childbearing age. But in those first 25 cha- verses of chapter 1, you hear the story about how God sends the angel Gabriel to uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, and says, I know you're old, and I know your wife is old, but I'm going to miraculously give you a son. That son turns out to be the man John the Baptizer, who is the forerunner of Jesus, kind of prepares the way for Jesus to come by pe- preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and that same angel, Gabriel, now is showing up to Mary. Now, we have to stop here, because as soon as we start talking about angels, the, um, the normal, sophisticated, educated Canadian turns up their eyebrows. Angels? Really? I think angels are, are kind of those things that we think just exist in terrible Hallmark movies or shows in the Discovery Channel that are just trying to get views. Now, as a Christian, I believe that angels and demons are real things. There are real personal spiritual beings that we can't see, who are not physical, but whom God sends to do his work, or in the demon's case, Satan sends to work against God. Now, if you don't believe that, I'll give you just a few points as to why I think the actual existence of angels and demons is is pretty reasonable. First of all, if you don't think angels and demons are real, you are living by a very Western, very narrow way of thinking about the world. Really, if you would go to Africa or to Asia or to South America or even to Mexico and North America, you would find the idea of the spiritual realm of angels and demons very common. Just about everybody is okay with the idea that there are spiritual beings that we can't see and they're doing stuff behind the scenes. So to say, I don't believe angels and demons are real, that's fine, you can believe that, but understand you are being very culturally narrow that way. Secondly, if you don't believe angels and demons are real, then you have a very hard time accounting for gross evil on the earth. Just take for a second the Holocaust. The Holocaust, possibly one of the most evil things that has ever happened in the history of the world, happened in one of the most sophisticated, highly educated cultures of that time in the world's history. Very often when we see gross evil, we say things like, well, you know, it needed better education, or there was some systematic injustice, or, or there was a bad, uh, the government wasn't taking care of these people, and so they rebelled. Not the case in the Holocaust. Those were just evil people who did an evil thing. How did that happen? How did they end up being more evil than everyone else? It reminds me of uh, the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Have you seen this movie? Officer Starling is going to interview Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter is the terrible evil man in in the movie. And she asks, what made Hannibal the way that he is? What happened to him? 
Unfortunately, Hannibal overhears her asking another officer, and he says, Officer Starling, nothing happened to me. I happened. Can't you admit that I'm just evil? If you have no way of explaining that there is evil outside of just human consciousness, you can't explain how gross evil happens in the world. Thirdly, oftentimes people will say, you know, angels and demons, they can't exist because we can't test them, we can't see them, we can't prove them. To which I would say that if they're supernatural beings, then that means that they are supernatural. And that natural things, which are tested by science, well, angels and demons are outside of that. Therefore, science cannot test for angels and demons. It necessarily can't. So to say science can prove or can't prove angels and demons is simply a false argument. Now, there are other reasons I believe angels and demons are real, but for the sake of the text here, we're not going to spend more time on that. But I think it is actually a pretty reasonable idea to believe that there are angels and demons that exist in the world. And this angel, whose name is Gabriel, comes to Mary to give her a message from God. Um, Now, the place that he comes to is a place called Nazareth. And what's interesting about Nazareth is that Nazareth is not mentioned in any other ancient literature besides the Bible. Now, you might think, at first glance, that's maybe a shot against the credibility of the Bible. But actually, Nazareth didn't exist in any other ancient documents because it was Nowheresville. It was a tiny, tiny little town, about 150 kilometers north of Jerusalem. I mean, it was backwoods up north to the max. In fact, Luke has to give Theophilus, the reader of his gospel, a little hint to where this place even is. He says, Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Similar to if we would say, name a town that nobody knows, a town in Ontario. Just so that people would have some idea of where this place was. Now, I know we don't live in a small town, but some of you come from small towns, and you know what small town life is like. You know that there aren't really big aspirations of making big things happen in the world. You kind of like your small town life. You just want to get married. You want to have kids. You want to hold down a steady job. You want to enjoy the weekends and enjoy your vacations during the summer. That's what Mary was looking forward to. She was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph who was a carpenter, a hard-working man who we find out from other texts in the Bible was a very righteous man too, a good leader for his family. Mary had her whole little small-town life planned out in front of her. She was going to get married. She was going to have a bunch of babies. She was going to live the good, homely life until her script was flipped. Until God sent an angel and sent her down a different path. Let's see what the angel says. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, it's important to be careful as we read this verse and understand what the angel is actually saying. As we read this at first, we might think, this is is the angel announcing to Mary that God likes her more than most people. Right? When we hear the word favored, that's usually where our mind goes because we have an English word, favorite, which is a preference of one thing over everything else, right? So you who are highly favored, God must see something in you. But that's not what the Greek that this text was originally written in says. The word that's translated favored here is just the word for grace. Uh, If you're taking notes with us, that's your first fill in the blank today. The favored is just to be graced. God is coming to Mary and saying, you are receiving grace. 
Now, if you're not sure what grace exactly is in the Christian understanding, it's a technical term that we use to talk about God's undeserved love towards sinners. It's the way that God operates despite the evil and rebellion that we have as people. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he gives us undeserved love that he manifests in bringing Jesus down as a human to die for our sins so that we will not die with our sins, but will go to be with him someday in heaven. Now run that through what the angel says to Mary. Greetings, Mary. You've been highly graced. You've been given a special measure of God's undeserved love. No one deserves it, but you get a little bit more because God is awesome. The Lord is with you, she gets to hear. What beautiful words. But those aren't words just for her. They're words for you. God gives his grace to all people, and the Lord is with you. We'll find out later in the text that the Lord says he works through his word, that God's word is where grace comes, and you're hearing his word right now as I read it off this, off this, uh, out of the Bible and I speak it to you. You right now are highly graced. God opened his mouth to establish a relationship with you. Just like you establish human relationships by talking, God talks to you and says, I'm coming, or have come, to be your savior, to set you on a different path, and I don't, I don't want us to lose this moment in the text because the rest of the text is going to focus on Mary's reaction to the angel. And we're going to see a lot of really good examples of how to react to God. But I don't want us to miss that God made the first move. That God came to Mary and said, I'm giving you grace. Now the angel, when she comes, excuse me, when he comes, um, greatly troubles Mary. The text tells us that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, excuse me, but the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. So the text tells us that Mary was greatly troubled. Why would she be greatly troubled? Well, because she's seeing an angel. If you look across the Bible, anytime angels show up, people react in the same way. They all fall down on the ground as though one dead. In fact, Mary is the only person who doesn't. She doesn't fall down dead on the ground. She's very troubled, though. Why is she very troubled? Because when you see an angel, it freaks you out. Now, we might not think that seeing an angel would freak us out because we think of angels very often like Hallmark thinks of angels. Like tall, attractive, perfectly coiffed hair, wings, and kind of glowing white a little bit. That's not how the Bible describes angels. In fact, I just want to give you a little piece of one of the places where God describes what angels look like through the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, This is Ezekiel chapter 1. It says, In their appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. And the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human. On the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. And each also had the face of an eagle. Now, is this what Mary saw? We're not totally sure. But if angels look anything like this, she's got every reason to feel troubled at seeing this creature. But that's not what I want you to focus on most in this verse. I want you to focus 
on the fact that she wondered. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to notice about Mary is that Mary wondered. And when we think of wonder, very often we think of mouth agape, looking at something without understanding. But again, the English betrays us a little bit here and doesn't, doesn't give us the full meaning of what the word comes across as in, in Greek. Uh, the Greek word, if you're looking for a definition, I put one up here for you, is to think about or reason out the implications of something carefully. Uh, literally, the word in Greek is dialogos, where we get our English word dialogue from. To think something out, to talk back and forth, to speak to yourself in your own mind, to say, what does this mean? What is going on here? What are the possible categories that I can put this event into so that I can understand it? See, Mary doesn't stand there looking at the angel thinking, nothing. And she starts to reason. She starts to wonder. Which should make us start to think, how do we react when God does something in our life? When God shows up to you in his word, do you wonder? Do you think about the implications of what his word is saying? When you hear a sermon or you listen to a podcast or you read a devotion, do you take the time to dialogue with yourself? To say, what does this change in my life? How does this change how I manage my time? How does this change how I manage my money? How does this change how I... uh, how I prioritize things? How does this change my relationship with my family or my friends? How does it make me act at work? Do you think these things through? Do you wonder? Maybe another way of thinking about this. When things happen in your life, do you wonder? When the script is flipped on you, whether by God or by somebody else, do you wonder? Do you think through, what is God doing here? How could this possibly be beneficial for me in the long term? I think our natural reaction is to snap back at whatever thing is happening in our life that we don't like. We'll either let some words fly that we regret later, or we'll think in our minds about how terrible that person is for thinking that way or doing that thing, instead of taking the time to reason it out, to dialogue with ourselves, to say, what could that person be trying to do that's positive? How can we put the best construction on what they're doing? Maybe there's something else going on in their life. Maybe they have something going on at home or at work, or maybe they have some mental disability that I I don't know about and I need to be conscious of. This is not scripture, but this is a great phrase that I think has really helped me. Um, The only way to convince someone that you're right is to genuinely allow for the possibility that they are. say it again so you can get that in your mind. The only way, sorry, my my thing here is way behind. The only way to convince someone else that you're right is to genuinely allow for the possibility that they are. Is that how we react when things go wrong for us? When people do things the way that we don't like? Do we at least let ourselves for a minute have the possibility that maybe they are right? Maybe I'm wrong. Let's bring it back to Mary. When God comes and flips the script on her life, she wonders. She thinks to herself, how could this possibly be working out for my benefit? What is God doing here? Instead of running, instead of, instead of hiding, instead of pushing the angel away, no, she says, okay, 
I'm listening. I'm willing to take the time to hear and to wonder. The angel tells her, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. forever. His kingdom will never end. So the angel gives her a long list of things that she needs to remember, and it's amazing that she remembers all these things, honestly. Um, but, so we're going to go through them in bullet points for the sake of us who don't have as great a mind as Mary does. Uh, the first thing that the angel tells Mary is that she's going to have a son, like a human son, which means that God is going to become human. The immortal is going to take on mortality. The unkillable is going to become killable. The unstoppable is going to become stoppable. The almighty is going to become humble. And the angel tells her that she's going to name this son of hers Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is a Hebrew name that has been translated into Greek, which has been transliterated into English. Yes, transliteration and translation are different things. The original name that Jesus would have actually got is Yeshua. It's the Hebrew name that just means the Lord saves. So this son, who Mary is going to receive through her womb, is going to be the Lord saves, which means this child has a very special mission. And he's going to do it as the son of the Most High. Now Mary knows she is not the Most High. And she knows Joseph is not the Most High. Which means that this son is not just going to be human, but he is also going to be God. And that is critical for understanding what God is doing. Jesus is both God and human at the same time. He is human so that he can die because God cannot die. But he is God so that he can be perfect. So when he dies, his perfection can be credited to you. Jesus has to be both God and human. The angel then tells her that he's going to be given the throne of his father David. David, if you don't know, is the greatest king in Israel's history. Mary would have heard many stories about David and how his kingdom was prosperous and powerful and people were protected because David listened to God and God gave the nation those wonderful blessings. Ever since David, people had longed for that moment when God was going to establish his everlasting kingdom on David's throne. Well, guess what? Here it is. It's happening with this child, Mary. Jesus is going to get the throne of his father, David, and it is going to be an everlasting kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And if you're a Christian today, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you're in that kingdom. The protection that God offers you is not just the protection of a political power, but the protection of the Almighty God. Watching over every moment of your life, knowing your present, your past, and your future, and knowing exactly what you need. The prosperity that that kingdom affords you is not monetary prosperity. It is the prosperity of all the riches of heaven which God has promised to you. And the power that God offers you is not the power of a military army, but the power of angel armies who watch over every moment of your life just like Gabriel, giving grace to you from God. 
But if you're not, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christ follower. I have some really good news for you. That kingdom can be yours. And it doesn't ask anything of you. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. You don't have to do anything at all. In fact, Jesus himself said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news is a power-packed phrase, but it is essentially saying, admit that you can't do this yourself and let me do it for you. Admit that you're not good enough. Admit that you failed. Admit that you're imperfect. In fact, you're sinful, but that Jesus has come to take that sin away and to give you his grace. This kingdom can be yours, friends, and there's nothing you have to do to earn it. Let's continue with the text from Luke 1. Mary asks the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Pretty reasonable question, right? She knows how babies are made, and she knows that she hasn't had sex with Joseph, so how is this child who is both God and man going to happen? Uh, Interestingly, if you've been reading the story in Luke chapter 1 up to this point, You've seen Zechariah, remember Elizabeth's husband, ask almost the exact same question and get a completely different reaction from Gabriel. Uh, Luke chapter 1, before this text, is when Zechariah sees Gabriel. And Zechariah asks Gabriel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. He gets it too, right? He understands how babies are made. He knows that when you're in your 70s, you're probably not having a baby. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, because, and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Now we're going to find out in a couple verses that Gabriel, when, when Mary asks this question, gives her just the answer. She says, God is going to do this and she's very pleasant with her. So what's Gabriel's deal? Like, did he have a bad day when he was with Zechariah and now he's in a better mood? No, actually, you can see why Gabriel gives different reactions to each person in the way that they ask their question. In fact, if you put them side by side, you can see this. Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? Well, Mary asks, how will this happen? See, what Zechariah was doing was asking the angel to answer his question on his terms. Where Mary was asking the angel, answer me on God's terms. I see people do this all the time. First of all, people who don't believe in Jesus, they will try to get God to answer questions on their terms. They'll say things like, you know, I can't believe in God because there's no evidence for God. Or there's not enough evidence for God. You know, that's kind of an unfair question of God. Because the truth is, there is evidence. You maybe just don't like it. If I can give you an analogy of this, let's say someone comes to you and says, "Um, I don't believe that Winston Churchill ever existed. You would think, well, okay, well, I can show you some evidence that he existed. Here are some pictures of him. Here's some video of him. Here's some stuff he wrote. Here's some stuff that people wrote about him. Here's even some paintings that he made. Pretty sure he existed. But that person might say to you then, nope, still don't believe. In fact, I'm not going to believe until I see Winston Churchill in the flesh. Well, I'm sorry, I I can't provide you that evidence because Winston Churchill is dead. 
but sometimes people come to God that way. I will only believe in God if he does a miracle for me. Well, he's done a bunch of miracles already, and they're all written down for you. People saw them. People attested to having seen them. And God also very clearly said, I don't do miracles anymore because the miracles were to show you Jesus, and now that Jesus is here, you can believe in him. Some people will come to God and say, I will not believe in God unless I see him. Okay, well, God came down in the form of Jesus Christ, so we could see him. But remember that every time God actually wants to show his full glory to people, he has to tell them, you can't look directly at me because you'll die if you do. The very fact that you haven't seen God yet is God not killing you. Some people will say, I can't believe in God unless I see evidence in my life. Well, there's all sorts of evidence in your life. There are Christians whom God is working through to bless you. There are churches around you where God is giving you a life-giving message. But the truth is, if you want God to answer your questions on your terms, you're going to be disappointed. God isn't going to answer your questions on your terms. He's going to answer them on, on his terms. But before we Christians start to think of ourselves as so much better than all those people who don't believe in Jesus, let's remember that Christians are just as bad at this if not worse. See, Christians know what God says. They've read God's word. They believe those words. They believe that they are truth, and yet Christians will often act the exact opposite of them. I've sat across the table from somebody who has told me, I know the Bible says that I should forgive people, but I can't. But what do you want? God gave you the word. You believe that it's true, and you're just choosing to go a different direction. I mean, it's as foolish as if we were driving down the road, we saw a sign that said bridge out, and we decided to keep going as fast as we were going without looking for any danger along the road. Yeah, I know what God said, but you know, I'm just kind of going to do my own thing. We're just as bad at this, Christians. Which is why we need God's grace to forgive those sins. The Christians and non-Christians, they are just as bad as each other. Christians are not better, and people who don't believe in Jesus are not worse. There are no good people. In fact, Jesus came to save bad people because bad people are all that there are. But very often, what we all do, whether Christian or not, is try to get Jesus to answer our questions on our terms instead of asking him to answer on his terms. And so Mary teaches us something very important. Next fill in the blank if you're taking notes of this. Mary asked. She asked. She didn't demand like Zechariah. She just said, you said this is going to happen. Would you explain to me how that's true? And as a congregation, we want to facilitate this kind of asking amongst our congregation. We want to give you all sorts of opportunities to ask questions so you can find out the truth that Jesus has told us and why it is true. I'll just give you four really good ways to ask questions if you're wondering, if you're exploring, if you're thinking maybe this could be true. The first of those is to ask a question after the sermon. Every Sunday, we take questions from the congregation about my sermon. If there's something that I said that wasn't clear, or you didn't understand, or you were sleeping during part of it, you can ask, and I will answer your question. And if I don't know the answer or don't have the answer on the top of my head, I'm going to make a video for you on our YouTube channel. And you'll be able to watch that video and get your answer. You'll be able to go back and watch it again, in case you didn't understand it the first time. We also have two classes where we walk through the basic teachings of the Bible. The first of those is called Faith Builders. 
It's our Bible 101 class. It's the very basics of what Christianity teaches, and it gives you the space to ask any questions about what you think or what you want to know about Christianity. We also have a course that comes after that, our Bible 201 course, which is called Growing in Grace and Knowledge. Growing in Grace and Knowledge takes on some of the deeper topics of Scripture, some of the more controversial topics of Scripture, and shows you how, first of all, Scripture teaches them, and secondly, how they're a beautiful part of God's creation. There's another space to ask questions. We want to give you the opportunity to ask questions of God on his terms so he can give you solid answers. So Mary teaches us, first of all, to wonder, to dialogue, then to ask. The last thing she's going to teach us from the last bit of the text here, so we'll continue. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. So Mary gets some evidence. She gets an answer on God's terms. The angel says to her, well, look at Elizabeth. You know it's the sixth month of her pregnancy. She's showing pretty well, and you also know how old she is. God is doing something right now. There's your evidence. And if I say that the Lord said, then no word from God will fail. This is going to happen. God says so. Now God has said some amazing things about you. Not specifically like Mary, that this specific thing is going to happen in your life, but he has given you some amazing words that cannot fail. And I want to walk you through some of those words. And as you hear these words from Jesus that cannot fail, that are truth, that are recorded for you so that you can go back to them and hear them again and again, if you're a Christian, remind yourself these things have implications in your life. But if you're not a Christian today, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus then I want you to just think for a second, what if it were true? What if these things were actually true? Would that make Christianity different than every other religion on earth? Would that make Christianity different than how people operate in a normal setting? Let me give you some of those words. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Does that sound like the rest of the world that demands that you work more hours, you put in more effort, you work a little bit harder? No, Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'm going to give you rest like no one else. The Apostle Paul tells to us in his letter to Titus that God saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When somebody saves you, is it something that you do or something they do? Something God did. God did all the work. God pulled you out of the drowning waters. He saved you, and not because of righteous things you did, not because you're a good person, but because he's a good God. The book of Romans tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we cleaned up our act, not when we got our life in order. Not when we stopped doing whatever that thing is. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to offer God, God offered everything for us. In a different place, the Bible says that this is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some of you are trying to live life to the full. Jesus says, I can give it to you. In a different place, uh, Hebrews writes, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Like you could go to God right now and you could ask him, God, do you remember what I did yesterday? And he would say, no, I forgot. Book of Isaiah says that God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Like when God gets a tattoo, he doesn't tattoo mom on his shoulder. He tattoos your name right there so that he can see it every day. He can think about you and he can bring smile to his face. And then finally, Jesus' words, your sins are forgiven. And forgiven doesn't just mean forgotten. It doesn't just mean pushed aside. It means Jesus absorbs the debt. If someone owes a debt and a person forgives that debt, the person who forgives the debt still has to eat the cost, right? They gave the money and they're not getting it back. Jesus eats the cost of your sin. Your sins are forgiven. The angel Gabriel tells us that no word from God can ever fail. All those words are true. They're true for you. Repent, admit you can't do it, and believe the good news. That's what Mary did, the last verse of the text. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. The last thing that Mary did then, if you're taking notes with us, is our last fill in the blank. Mary trusted. God said so, I believe it. And before we think that this was an easy thing for her to trust, remember what kind of life she was facing now if those words from the angel were true. She had thought to herself, I got my nice small town life. I'm going to marry my love. I'm going to have a whole bunch of babies with him. We're going to have a great life. And now all of a sudden, she knows that people are going to look at her sideways because they're going to know she's not married and she's showing. And people are going to mutter things under their breath. Things like harlot, slut. She's worried she's going to lose her husband because he knows he didn't have that child with her. And actually, Matthew's gospel tells us that Joseph actually did, did consider divorcing Mary when he found out. She knows also that she's a 15 or 16-year-old girl or so in the Middle East in the first century where being sexually active outside of marriage was going to get her ostracized from the community. You think being a single mom is hard in 2019 in Canada? Being a single mom back then was even harder. All of this was staring her right in the face, and what does she say? Bring it on. What's that thing that God is presenting in front of you right now that you're having a hard time wrestling with? That way that God is flipping your script. Maybe it's related to your age. Maybe it's related to a relationship, your money, your church, whatever it is. That thing that, that God is putting in front of you and it's creating tension in your life. Maybe it's time to wonder, 
to look at what God says and think about the implications of a dialogue with yourself or maybe with the people in your life group. Then to ask questions, which you can ask of me or you can ask of a trusted Christian friend. But then finally to trust that when God says something, he says it for your good and that no word for him, from him can ever fail. And if you're willing to do that, you will see amazing blessings in your life. When Mary did that, the world was saved through Jesus. That's a pretty awesome blessing. But the only reason she was able to believe it is because she believed in the grace of God. Those first words from the angel ringing in her ears still, you who are highly graced. And so if you get nothing else out of this message today, remember that despite who you are, despite who you've been, despite who you even might be, God is gracious to you. He sent Jesus 2,000 years ago to die for your sins so that forever and eternity you could be with him all because of his undeserved love to you. I pray that works its way into your heart and you believe the good news because you heard it here first. Amen.